Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Fogelman. I'm the director of the Institute for the Renewal of Christian Catechesis. And I'm here today to talk with Bruce Heinmarsh about a recent book of his on the topic of early evangelicalism. It's called The Spirit of Early Evangelicalism, True Religion in a Modern World. Bruce is the James M. Houston Chair of Spiritual Theology at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's the author of a number of books and articles on early evangelicalism and also teaches on the history of Christian spirituality more broadly. Bruce, thank you for being with me. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Um, the first thing I thought we could do is have you um, explore the thesis of your book by just unpacking the title of it. You mentioned that the title is particularly chosen, um, but before we do that, I just wanted to um, mention George Marsden's uh, blurb on the back of this book. He describes it as an artfully written, insightful, and sometimes brilliant account of evangelicalism in its original 18th century forms. Um, and that is indeed the case, a beautifully written book um, showing a long time engagement uh, with the evangelicals. It's clear from reading this, you've been reading with them and sitting with them uh, for a long time. Uh, but yeah, I hope you could uh, maybe unpack the, the title of the book, The Spirit of Early Evangelicalism, and also the subtitle, True Religion in a Modern World. Great. Maybe walk us through Great. those things. Okay, sure. So when we talk about the spirit of something, I mean, we could talk about school spirit, and we could talk about, you know, the kind of uh, spirit of an enterprise, and we're kind of meaning you know, what's the essence of it, or what's the core of it, or I suppose even in theological language, what's the kind of charism, you know, mm. that, um, the kind of, where is the real energy of this thing? And yeah. so in that sense, I was trying to get at um, what was sort of essential to this movement, a kind of new expression of Christianity, a new alignment or way of being a Christian. There's a certain kind of urgency to the whole thing, and what was the spirit of it? And trying to get at what was central. Uh, but in another sense, the word spirit, I was concerned with, uh, you know, spirituality, the devotion of the movement, the way in which they understood what it was to uh, live out of a union with the Holy Spirit and union with Christ. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to write an account of the spirituality, so the word is meant to signal that. <clears throat> but then I think thirdly, um, Alex, I wanted, the, I wanted to raise questions of what the word spirit means yeah. in a world, mm -hmm. and this gets to the subtitle, in a modern world, mm -hmm. where um, there's this massive kind of metaphysical shift yeah. that comes with the scientific revolution, with the enlightenment, with modernity, and with, um, and we can get into that more talking about that, but where a lot of assumptions that had, had informed Christian spirituality for centuries had shifted. Mm -hmm. And with the preoccupation with nature, what nature is and how we understand nature, you can't talk about that without it raising questions for what spirit is. Yeah. So there's a way I wanted that word in the title to signal that. Yeah. And then one of my favorite books was uh, by Robert Wilkin called The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. So I just wanted um, just a vague little, <laughs> a little homage to um, yeah. <laughs> Robert Wilkin. So, yeah. yeah. A, a book that also touches on a yeah. lot of these th same themes, not just talking about, say, uh, the doctrines of yeah, early yeah. Christians, or in your case, early evangelicals, yeah. but also the spirit of that thought. Yeah, it's an amazing, beautiful book. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. indeed. Uh, one of the things that I think you do so well in this book, and it touches on, on a theme yeah. for catechesis especially, is how the early evangelicals 
negotiated uh, both the say, the world of the church with yes. its historic uh, doctrines and, and modes of spirituality with, as you say, th the modern world, which right. is, is a new kind of world. Um, and that's, that's a particularly important thing for catechesis because a catechist stands between these two worlds. Yes. He yes. tries to nice. interpret yeah. the language of the church um, for people who are not fluent in that language. Yes. Um, and but they don't do so uh, merely to merely to translate it or to just um, reduplicate it's the not assumptions. Just reiteration. It's not right. just reiteration. Yeah. So I'm wondering. It's it's a, it's a particular challenge for catechesis, but I think it's a theme that really emerges from yeah. this book and yeah. and from your historical study yeah. and yeah. the context. I'm wondering if you could say, uh, characterize for us how the evangelicals yeah. negotiated that. That's great. I I think. Um, there's a couple of sections to the book. In the first section, um, I wanted to deal with the question of how new is evangelicalism mm. and how much does it burst on the scene as something we've just never seen before. Yeah. Um, but then, how old is evangelicalism? You know, is this just repristinating, sort of renewing uh, or continuing something that has always been true? Mm. Um, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me, kind of yeah. thing. Mm. Um, and so there's a way that question um, there is a new expression of Christianity, but it, that is still drawing very deeply on um, on Christian roots, on the great tradition, yeah. and so it kind of sets up that question. And so the first couple of chapters wrestle with that. Yeah. And there are some new features. There's something new going on. There's mm -hmm. a new relationship to society, and uh, with the with the modern forms of society. We could talk more about that, mm -hmm. um, and that are quite dynamic. Mm -hmm and allow for some new kinds of um, um, expressions of the faith um, and things like the importance of small group religion and voluntary gatherings that are quite mm -hmm. dynamic. Uh, but then if you look at the reading lists, uh, yeah. they're reading the old books. They're reading all the old books. Yeah. And this is what is carrying the tradition forward. So in one sense, we, could, we can set that up. And if you like, that's sort of the social um, context. And in fact, in the period itself, like I'm, this is not just an imposition to use that framework. In the yeah. period itself, the debate was framed in terms of the battle of the books uh, between the ancients and the moderns. Yeah. So even in literary terms, um, figures like Jonathan Swift uh, put this right at the front of sort of consciousness mm. that this is what the issue of our times is. Um, are the moderns better? Are the ancients better? So seeing evangelicalism emerging in that context then sets up the other part of your question, which is um, we have something ancient mm -hmm. to share. Yeah. Uh, how do we communicate that uh, without it being just reiteration or just repeating things, mm -hmm. um, but actually engaging with the culture? So it, <clears throat> I was intrigued that the very same generation that saw the rise of this pattern of devotion, this evangelical devotion, mm. when I realized, um, I think it dawned on me, when you read the history of science, this is the same generation that was the first generation to receive the theories of Isaac Newton mm. and the scientific revolution to receive them into mainstream popular culture. Yeah. And I was kind of going, hang on a minute here. This is, you know, because historians of science do their thing, mm -hmm. and historians of Christianity and historians of religion do their thing. But when you realize this is the same generation, then I wanted to think about how the two are related to each other. Mm -hmm. And so the particular discourses I wanted to look at was what's happening when people think about science mm -hmm. and that big shift in how we see the world. 
literally how we even see the stars. Yeah. And then, um, and then what happened in ethics, hmm. because uh, it's the great century of law. Law is an important category, and you know you think about finding scientific laws. And then this mm. seems so productive and so valuable that people want to find something similar for morality mm. or for, if you like, the, the um, human nature. And so there's a quest to see who will be the Isaac Newton of the moral sciences. Mm. You know, will it be yeah. um, Adam Smith? Will it be David Hume? Who will it be? Um, it's still up for grabs. Yeah, yeah. it's up yeah. for grabs. Yeah. And can we actually do ethics by just reading off of human nature, mm. looking empirically mm. at human nature like we look at the universe? And can we determine a kind of moral sense innate in human nature that guides us without reference to God? We might believe in God, but we don't need to bring that into the account. We can right. just look at human nature. And so it's interesting, just to take those two discourses, there's a third that I look at, but those two discourses, um, the evangelicals, you know, we think of Christians, um, you know, the whole debate of Christianity and science, and people talk about warfare. Yeah. Well, it they embraced the science. Yeah. They received the science and uh, supported what people have called, historians call the moderate enlightenment. You know, mm. They kind of embraced it and actually celebrated the Newtonian universe and all that they were discovering and new things like how vast the universe is yeah. became an occasion for um, what Charles Wesley called wonder, love, and praise. Yeah. And so what I think they did with the Newtonian world is they nested it back within what we might call a transcendental framework or a mm. sacramental framework yeah. that simply by the act of offering it all back to God in wonder, love, and praise, their uh, devotion, their worship, did a kind of philosophical work above its pay grade. Yeah. They kind <laughs> of, uh, without returning to old Hellenistic ideas of form and mm -hmm. uh, microcosm and macrocosm and um, the four elements and the four humors, they didn't have to return to that. Right. They received the science uh, with the and spirit. And fairly well studied. I, it yes. like yeah. Edwards uh, in his notes on, on the modern uh, the physics of the day. It's, it's really striking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as a student, he, um, uh, um, Isaac Newton himself contributed the, the Principia and the optics to the library mm -hmm. at Yale College. They came out of their crates while he was an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And he studied, there's no question, he studied them thoroughly. We have his scientific notebooks. Yeah. And Wesley, likewise as an undergraduate at Oxford, read uh, Newton, read Robert Boyle, uh, read Descartes, mm -hmm. and was very familiar with all of these systems. So they, they, they didn't, when I say, yeah, that's good. When they received it, it wasn't just like um, in some kind of popular form. Right. It, they, yeah. they really did study it. And um, it didn't cause enormous problems mm -hmm. for them. Um, you know, what do we do about our faith? What do mm -hmm. we, but what they really did is they, they embraced it, but placed it, the, the problem could be if the world has been in a sense, um, uh, what's it, disenchanted. Yeah, if right. It's, if it's a disenchanted world, it's just surfaces now. Mm -hmm. There's no innate form principle. There's no kind of spirituality to the world mm -hmm. and how you see the world. You just see matter as dead matter. Mm -hmm. um, it can raise questions about where is God present and how is God right. present. Mm -hmm. So what they do in a sense is they take that picture of the world, but their very worship and devotion acts to re-enchant the world yeah. without yeah. returning to magic or alchemy or... Right. or Hellenism, but simply to see this is God's world 
and they offer it back up in worship. Mm. And in a sense, um, as I say, it's like um, when you read Jonathan Edwards at the same time doing his science, what's happening in his mm -hmm. spiritual life, you realize every tree is a burning bush, yeah. every cloud is a pillar of fire, mm -hmm. and he is still seeing God in the world, not just something you arrive at at the end of an argument and affirm. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And um, so, what, so back to the, you know, what that means for human nature, you would say, okay, yeah. well, the evangelicals, they're, isn't that cool? They kind of embrace science, and so they must be just embracing culture. Mm -hmm. Well, when this shifts over to human nature, and can we kind of do the same thing with human nature and just read laws off of human nature, and the kind of direction it goes, yeah. they're actually much more sharply at odds with their culture. Yeah. And they actually go, no, I don't think we really can go that direction. Yeah. And they reaffirm what um, you know might be called ethicists might call a, a, a divine command ethic mm -hmm. that we need um, God's divinely revealed law because we just we kind of go wrong if we and so that whole movement towards autonomy, yeah. uh, you know, and towards. Um, what is it that Kant says? We become a universal lawmaker. Yeah. We, um, you know, the categorical imperative, what we propose mm -hmm. to ourselves, if we can propose it universally, then that becomes a law. And mm -hmm. that movement towards autonomy, yeah. sort of from natural law to autonomy, they step back and they kind of go, no, mm -hmm. we need God to reveal to us what we could never know ourselves. And what he reveals <clears throat> through his law, when it's received spiritually, mm -hmm. and then addresses us inwardly, and extensively is to do with everything in our lives, what we actually find is the desperate need for God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Yeah. So all of a sudden, conversion, the need for conversion, comes into the center of their ethics. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, it's not that they just say, okay, so we're just going to... I mean, there's always a danger, um, and perhaps some could retreat into a sectarian bubble and just ignore things. Sure. But again... Um, it's actually quite majestic to watch Jonathan Edwards engage with this. Yeah. Because he says, um, you know what, I want to engage with this whole discourse. Mm. And I want to engage with it constructively. And I still want to affirm there is such a thing as natural virtue. Mm -hmm. And people are capable of goodness in, by the mercy of God in a broken world. Yeah. There's real goodness. But he says it's vastly different from what he calls true virtue. It's mm. like when evangelicals talk about being a real Christian. Uh -huh. so they're looking for something deeper. Hmm. And he says for that we need, um, we must be, he says, assimilated to the divine nature. Mm. God reveals God. We need the very presence of God. Yeah. And any ethical system that leaves God out of the picture, it, it's like he's saying it's obvious it's not comprehensive enough. Right. You know, he's yeah. the being of being. But the way he does this, he doesn't quote any Bible verses. Mm. He doesn't... Um, he doesn't begin sort of with theological assumptions per se. Yeah. He actually does a first order constructive ethics and then engages in a critical ethics dealing mm. with all the moral philosophers of the period yeah. to try to work out this spirit of right. early evangelicalism, the spirit of devotion, what it might mean engaging with, um, engaging with a culture, the sort of incoming wave of culture that he sees having a kind of... Um, negative impact around them. Yeah. 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 That, that raises a, another question about the practice of catechesis uh, that, that I think comes up in this. And that's that uh, we, we sometimes tend to think of, of catechesis as simply learning the, the theological doctrines of the yeah. catechism. Yeah. 
Um, and so it may be conceived as a, as a uh, sort of merely intellectual right. exercise that could leave the morals and the affects untouched. Right, right. And this seems like an area in which we have a lot to learn uh, right. from the early, early evangelicals, yes. and that they don't just counter um, the currents of the modern age with, um, as you say, reiterating mm-hmm. uh, the past, but they come at it with a different um, a mode. Um, poetry, it, for, yeah. for one, and the hymns yes. play a particular role yes. in the catechesis yes. uh, in this age. Yeah. You know, in fact, my, my uh, former supervisor in Oxford, um, Anglican priest, he's passed away now, um, died of cancer recently, um, but I remember we were chatting one time, and he could do the entire Apostles' Creed in single lines of famous hymns, <laughs> right? Yeah. But indicating yeah. that as we sing, well, we are catechizing each other. Mm. We are teaching each other. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. There's a way that this is part of what carries the freight yeah. at a popular level, part of what carries the gospel into the hearts of women and men. Mm. It's, 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 it's full of content. These hymns yeah. are not, yeah. um, you know, I, I joke that some modern choruses have the kind of subjective quality of I love the way I feel when I love you. you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and it's kind of hard to work with that. Yeah. Whereas Charles Wesley's hymns especially, they seem so full of rich didactic content, right. uh, yeah. but not divorced from feeling. There's a volcanic force of feeling, of aspiration, of desire, mm. so that as people are kind of receiving these kind of truth claims, if you like. Yeah. Um, at the same time, this is going um, deep into their hearts, yeah. and um, and and the fervor with with which these hymns were being sung yeah. uh, really needs to be emphasized. Because people might think today of hymns as old-fashioned, but hymns were the avant-garde mode because people had been psalm singing. Yeah. And psalm singing was. Which is fantastic, but right. it had been getting a bit dull. Mm-hmm. But the really innovative thing, um, what all the angry young men were doing, <laughs> is um, is is the hymnody, and yeah. so it it yeah. it had uh, tremendous force, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, a number of uh, literary critics now are returning to the evangelical hymns and mm-hmm. recognizing their their um, um, sort of. Um, poetic sort of strength of diction yeah. and recognizing um, some of the force of this in, yeah. in the poetics of somebody like Charles Wesley. Yeah. I, um, I think even today you can, um, you can see it. I feel like when I hear some Charles Wesley's hymns being sung, I feel like the volume goes up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear There's people. a certain gusto yeah. that, uh, yeah. that emerges from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, maybe what, one last question. Um, what would what word of hope would the uh, evangelicals have for catechists and pastors today? Oh, I think uh, just to never underestimate the power of the gospel. Hmm. You know, as um, it is, as Paul says, it's the dunamis. It's the power hmm. of God that the gospel to communicate the gospel and to in this catechetical enterprise as you've described it. Is not simply a transmission of information, mm-hmm. but the gospel is a word of power. Mm. You know, you think mm. in uh, speech act theory, they talk about performatives, that um, it's a different thing to say, um, Bruce and Carolyn Hindmarsh are married. That's a different thing than when the minister said, mm. I now pronounce you man and wife. Mm. That was a word that changed things in the real world. Mm. 
it actually was a word that, that made a difference. And I think the gospel in that sense, I don't know if the analogy is entirely uh, correct, but it, it is dynamic. It's a word of power that change, to be able to communicate the gospel, um, that's a word that the Holy Spirit owns and that changes the lives of women and men. I think these early evangelicals will say, never forget that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and it'll change people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, they would want to renew our confidence in that. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, a wonderful word and a wonderful book. Again, The Spirit of Early Evangelicalism uh, just came out last year. I warmly commend that to you. And Bruce, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Alex. All right. Yeah.